Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. The March-April issue of my magazine, Brick and Elm, is out on newsstands now. It's our annual home issue, and it includes an exclusive photographic tour of the Frank Lloyd Wright-designed home here in Amarillo. It's the most famous house in the city, but very few locals have seen it, and a lot of people, I'm discovering, haven't even heard about it. So we're really excited to introduce readers to it in this issue. If you don't subscribe to the magazine, I hope you'll pick one up at Market Street, Market 33, Burrowing Owl, Barnes & Noble, or any of our other retail partners. Today's guest is Adrian Escobar, the Outdoor Recreation Planner for the Crossbar Special Recreation Management Area. It's a long title, but here's what he does. He works for the Bureau of Land Management, which is an agency within the U.S. Department of the Interior, and the Crossbar property is a hidden gem that's located about 15 miles northwest of Amarillo. And it includes 12,000 acres of public land, but those acres aren't accessible to the public because they're surrounded by private property. And so this past weekend, a nonprofit advocacy group called Friends of Crossbar hosted a Trails Day out on the property, and they're working to educate the public and raise funds so they can improve access to it, hoping to create a fantastic outdoor recreation spot. And so as a local federal representative for the Crossbar, I asked Adrian to come on the show and explain how he got here. He started from a dairy farm on the border and how Crossbar came to be and what it could look like in the future. So here's Adrian Escobar. Adrian Escobar, welcome to the Hammerillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, Been following you for a long time and I know a lot of your, your guests that have been on and it's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad to have you. I know that uh, that we've had conversations in the past about Crossbar and some of the stuff you're involved with, but I, I'm eager to have you on the show and, and hear more about your story. So I want to start the same way I do with all my guests and just ask, like, why are you here? What brought you here in the first place? Yeah, um, Amarillo was never on the radar. You know, I, I was born and raised in, in a small border town outside of El Paso Okay, called Clint. You know, my dad was a dairy farmer, so we grew up doing the dairy life, working early mornings into late nights. I always heard about Amarillo and the Panhandle, but once you're ingrained in the dairy life, you don't leave much. I can't think of any family vacations that we ever really took. Um, So my geographical boundary was limited to Clint and El Paso, Texas. That's a long way away anyway. Like, you'd have to be driving pretty far to come through here. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, Texas, it takes forever to get anywhere. But uh, once I left Clint, um, I moved to Dallas to go to SMU. Okay. That turned out to be basically a year, a very expensive year of partying for me. All right. Um, I can imagine SMU is is not the cheapest school. It's not the cheapest school. It's definitely, it, it was definitely a change of pace for me. You know, a small dairy farm kid to what SMU is. Um, and I've come to meet several folks that are helping with the crossbar that went to SMU as well. So we have that connection. So uh, that year went by really fast. Mm-hmm. I moved back to El Paso, um, went to UTEP for a semester, and then I went to a college station. Um, okay. I followed my girlfriend, which is who is my wife now, to college station. But uh, I still wasn't ready for school. You know, I was a late bloomer academically. So I just worked. Didn't know really what I was going to do. So I went into, uh, you know, I would take classes here and there at Blinn or yeah. Sam Houston. 
A lot of students that maybe aren't ready for A&M or don't get into A&M will go to Blinn and get the basics out of the way anyway. Right, right. I think that's a great choice. A&M was a huge campus. It's only gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I like the smaller environments, but that wasn't the main reason. I just, you know, my grades at SMU suffered, so I needed to work my grades back up to get admitted into those, into a bigger school. So in the meantime, I, you know, I went to the Texas A&M Fire Academy. Um, I was recruit class 115, and I thought I wanted to be a structural firefighter. Hmm. And... You know, I applied for several firefighter positions in big cities like Austin and Houston and San Antonio. But, you know, there's about 1,200 applicants going through the civil service exam, and there's a lot of competition. So even though I scored very high on my on my test, often, t- well, every time I was, if I had a 98, somebody, you know, 12 people had a 99 ahead of me, yeah. or the veteran's preference points bumped me out. So I kind of... uh changed my path and started getting serious about school again. Um, so really hit the books hard and uh, applied back to A&M and was accepted. But at the same time, we wanted to move closer to home. My wife and I had our started our family. Right, so you were married then at that point. Yeah, yeah. I was married. Uh, my wife had just finished her master's at A&M, and I realized we needed to, I needed to start getting serious and find a career path not knowing at all that this was going to be my career path working for the BLM. Once you kind of changed your mind about the firefighter mm-hmm. academy uh, or pursuing that path, like did you did you have an idea of what you might be interested in or good at? I thought I was going to be a petroleum geologist. I love I always I've always loved geology. I love studying rocks and formations and you know plate tectonics was a really interesting mm-hmm. field for me. But I wanted to chase the money of, you know, the petroleum side. Yeah. And so that's what I was focused on at Sam Houston. But we decided to move to Lubbock. Uh, We wanted to be closer to family, you know, El Paso to College Station. That's a really long drive. My wife's parents are in Matador, Texas, just, you know, an hour and a half from here in in Lubbock. So we moved there. And when I got to Texas Tech, the I went to see my advisor and I was enrolled in astrophysics. I had no idea why. But that's just where they put you, right? That's just where they put me. Huh. And uh, apparently it was a requirement for my degree path. Hmm. So I went to school, went to uh, my first physics class, my astrophysics. I'd taken physics, but not astrophysics, certainly. And the uh, professor handed out tests, you know, pre-assessment tests. And I had no idea what was on the page. All I knew was where my name went. <laughs> <laughs> and so I got up and I turned the paper in and he asked me what was wrong, and I said, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. I, everybody else in the class, heads down, riding away, and uh, I just I said, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. And he told me it was going to be a very long semester for me then. And I said, no, it's not. I'm going to the wildlife department. <laughs> and so that's when everything started. I went huh. to the wildlife at Texas Tech. Why did you choose that? You know, I've always been into outdoors um, growing up on a dairy, I was always outside. I've always been a better worker than a student. Um, and that was something that was something I was going to enjoy. Hmm. I'd never taken a biology class, certainly not a wildlife biology class. And, and so I changed my degree path and had to start over again. But I mean, there's a lot of biology that happens on a dairy farm, I can imagine. So I, it, you weren't unfamiliar with it. No, wasn't unfamiliar with it. Um, you know, and I had a young family at the time. You know, I had two kids. Jackson and Isabel were already born. 
I just needed something that I'd enjoy, get done with. And I was still thinking, well, maybe I'll go back. I still had my firefighter certifications and thinking, well, maybe I'll just go that route. Uh, you know, that didn't pan out. I started enjoying my field and doing a lot of research on like the prairie chickens and, hmm. you know, in Yoakum County. And it's a very controversial species, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And while I was doing that, I, I went to work for the Fish and Wildlife Service as a biology technician, you know, doing bird count surveys, doing a lot of maintenance work, things that I like doing, you know, working with my hands, not sitting in an office, um, that it was, it was a really good move for us. I had no idea the BLM existed like most people do in Texas. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a new thing. I, you know, even working for the Fish and Wildlife Service, I, I didn't know BLM existed in Amarillo. I got a call one day and it was a uh, state director out of New Mexico and they'd gotten my name from some Texas Parks and Wildlife colleagues. And uh, they were looking for somebody in the region, in the area, certainly that would want to work on a reintroduction of a species in Amarillo. And that's where the crossbar came up. So I was, I competed for the job and I was brought on to reintroduce black-footed ferrets and prairie dogs, controversial species. Yeah. People aren't so welcoming of prairie dogs. Um, kids love them. Kids Landowners love them. Yeah. don't necessarily Not so like much. Them. Right, right. So it was a controversial topic, controversial project for sure. Ultimately, it didn't work out because we had to, we, our soil depth wasn't deep enough. We, mm. Prairie dogs need a certain depth, you know, over the landscape to establish themselves. And obviously, black-footed ferrets need prairie dogs to survive because they eat them. Right. So- had to uh, reevaluate what I was going to do with the property and uh, determined it was a great site for a recreation area. So that's where you were trying to reintroduce then the black-footed ferret and the, the prairie dog was right. on that crossbar property. It was going to be on the crossbar, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, a lot of research went to it, a lot of pre-work, but ultimately it didn't work out. For the better, I think uh, recreation is the best path for, for the crossbar and for the area. Before we talk about like what that might be, why is that area there in the first place? Like, why is it managed by the BLM, the Bureau of Land Management? Which, I mean, locals may have encountered it if you've traveled in Colorado or gone camping. I mean, you can find BLM land there. There's not that much in Texas. So why is it here and why does it exist there? Yeah, so we all, we've all heard of helium. Um so the, the the Bureau of Land Management, BLM, it's not that old of an agency. It was really established in 1946. Uh, we, you know, the, the government merged the General Land Office and the Grazing Service into one agency and converted it into the BLM. There's not a lot of public land in Texas to speak of, and that's because of when Texas joined the Union and back in the Louisiana Purchase mm -hmm. era, um, it just it came in after all this federal land was established. Um, so way back in the early 1800s, you know, the government was was encouraging westward expansion and homesteading and had all this federal land to use to encourage people to move west. Well, none of it existed in Texas, um, but the crossbar will come to be the crossbar. So the crossbar was, as far as I could find records— Back in 1906, it was, we think this is accurate, it was part of, uh, it was still called the Crossbar, but it was part of the Bivens family okay. uh, land. 
Um, that was sold off to another gentleman and then in the 30s, um, somewhere between when the land was sold in 1906 to the early 30s, uh, an oil company had purchased it. Well, the federal government came in after helium was discovered and and we you know they discovered all sorts of new uses for helium. They were very strategic for defense purposes. The government purchased the crossbar. So you'll hear a lot of discussion about you know state uh, federal government needs to give back federal land to the states and you can't really discuss that with the crossbar because it was a purchase. Hmm. It wasn't just uh you know like they didn't Take it, you know, eminent domain kind of thing. No, they didn't. And it wasn't included in the Louisiana Purchase mm-hmm. era where it was generally most BLM land was land that people didn't want. There was really no value for it at the time. But uh, this property was not part of that original establishment. So it's very different. It's the only BLM property in the state. Is that right? That's it. Yeah. yeah. You know, the BLM, we manage almost 250 million acres of land throughout the country, mostly in the West. But the crossbar 12,000 acres is the only land, only BLM land in Texas. Yeah. And what's unique about it is that it's surrounded on all sides by private property, right? So it's just this tiny little island of federal land, you know, with ranches and everything around it. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, we're surrounded in every direction by private lands. And that's not super uncommon, especially not in the bigger BLM states like New Mexico and, and Nevada, mainly the Western states. But if you look at New Mexico, which is the state office that I report to, and I report to the Oklahoma field office, it's not uncommon in, in states like New Mexico where you have scattered parcels of federal land mixed in with parcels of state and then private and, and then also tribal lands. Hmm. So it's uh, it's not uncommon in, in other states, but certainly in Texas, because it's the only BLM land, it's, yeah, we're surrounded by private land in every direction. What's the status of the helium interest there? I mean, if, if that's why the government wanted it in the first place, like, is, is, is that still happening? Are those deposits depleted or what, what's going on? So certainly I'm not a helium expert. I've never been directly tied to helium. I've always been on the periphery. Yeah. Or uh, on the surface, I guess. Or on the surface. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, that was a, a large amount of helium, you know, stored under the, the helium plant next to the crossbar. And over time, you know, scientists and science evolved and we learned new uses for helium. You know, helium's used for MRI machines, uh, fiber optics, underwater welding, you know, things like guided missiles, NASA uses it. They depend on it. Um, so Not just party balloons then, right? Not just party balloons. Yeah, I get that a lot. However, I believe, I don't know if I'm totally accurate on this, but I believe since helium was starting to become less abundant, helium was mixed with another gas for party balloons. Yeah. And so you, you see the party balloons, they don't stay up in the air as long as they used to. So yeah, helium is starting to transition to private ownership. Hmm. I can't speak specifically on it just because I'm not directly involved, but my understanding is that uh, we're starting the uh, quote unquote shutdown procedure to start transitioning over to private industry. When did you or the BLM start thinking that the, the use of the crossbar might be able to expand into 
something more recreational and just having this land sitting out there? Yeah. So once we determined that we're not going to be reintroducing a prairie dog or a black footed ferret, you know, I was, I was out on the property just doing habitat restoration efforts and, you know, thinking before I even had volunteers, I was wondering what we could do with this. And it was, I, I would say it's been, well, I've been with the BLM and the crossbar for 12 years. I'd say 10 years ago, hmm. started working towards this. It didn't really gain any momentum, you know, changes of administration and changes in other areas and government, you know, change everything. That's when, once we started gaining this momentum, that's when I learned, okay, the community really drives this more than myself or any government entity. It's community driven. So yeah, it's been about 10 years that I've personally been working on this, but the momentum has really started gaining a lot of speed about three years ago. For listeners that don't know that property, haven't seen it, maybe haven't even seen photos, how, how would you describe it? Like, like talk about what's out there. So we're right on the edge of the Canadian River. Uh, we have three canyons. We call them canyons. They're creeks, but they're they're deep. They're we're not. When you think of canyon, it's we're nowhere near the size of Paldero Canyon. Right. It's you know Paldero Canyon is special, um, but we have three canyons that run through it. I mean, so it's not flat range land out there. It's not flat range land. You know we're we're a tributary into the Canadian River, so it's it's rugged. Um, the canyons are about 150 feet deep. Uh, there's three of them. So from west to east, it's Horse Creek, then Ranch Creek, then West Amarillo Creek. On top, it's what you would expect out of a grassland, you know, mixed grasses, some short shrubs, and a lot of, you know, forbs that make the property really pretty when we get precipitation. Mm-hmm. So if you go out there now, I bet I've given over 150 tours by now to all our stakeholders and people who are interested in the project. I'm always comfortable when I'm taking a native Amarillo in to the crossbar because everybody's used to the dryness, yeah, the yellow. It's just what it looks like. It's just what it is what it is. But when I bring people out to, especially my colleagues in other states who who work at, you know, amazing properties that the whole country likes to go to, yeah. I'm like, well, it doesn't always look like. Do you feel this. a little defensive. I do. I I do automatically, even though I probably shouldn't. Um, because it's beautiful, whether it's dry or whether it's green, but uh, it really pops when it's green. It's it's just absolutely beautiful out there. I, I want to talk about, I guess, the two big questions related to the crossbar that I think people would have. Number one is like, what could it be? Like, what's the plan, or, or what are you imagining? Mm-hmm. And number two, like, what's the one big problem that's keeping that from happening? Um, and so let's start with the problem because I know it's it's accessibility. You've got to drive over. Uh, some very difficult and private dirt roads in order to get to this BLM property, which is, it's right off the highway. You know, it's it's not far. So with just a, a short little road, it could be accessible, but it's not at the moment. Right. So the number one problem is accessibility. Like we touched on earlier, it's surrounded by private lands. Luckily, we were donated an easement off of uh, Highway 287 through a private ranch to get in. It's a 2.1 mile easement. It's not the easiest route, but it's a route. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't want to take your Toyota Corolla out there. Yeah, Corolla's not going to make it. A rock crawler, a very souped-up rock crawler, maybe. But yeah, it's it's doable. 
but it's difficult. And that's where we're at with, with, uh, with the problem. We've actually, oh, we tried working with the federal highways back in 2019 to secure a grant for this type of work and COVID happened and, and, uh, changes in budgets happened and whatever was going on in the vaccines, uh, it changed everything. So move forward to 2022, uh, Potter County and our friends of crossbar group, uh, submitted a grant for the federal highway, federal lands access program, which is a federal highway program that, uh, whose main focus is developing access to isolated federal land. Hmm. So um, that grant has been submitted and, and the project was shortlisted. Um, you know, I think we're expecting in the summer this year to get a project development plan, which will kind of lay out the costs, the process. We still, we have to do environmental assessments on anything we do, sure. especially ground surface disturbing. Um, so We'll know, we'll have a better idea of where we are, a timeline. Maybe then I could speak on timelines. Um, but yeah, hopefully if all goes well, maybe we'll see some sort of construction in 2026. And when you talk about construction, like I, I know that, well, people think, oh, two miles, you know, you could, you could scrape up a, a dirt road and mm-hmm. two miles of that is not a big deal. But like out there, it's a big deal because there are, mountains and you know 100 foot inclines and a railroad out there like there's a lot of stuff happening and it's an expensive project yeah you know to just put a couple miles of, of even a dirt or caliche road out there right there's there's a lot of obstacles like i said you need a, raw, a very souped up rock crawler to get through it the way it is now a lot of work has to go into it we do have a trestle that needs to be replaced that's one of the biggest hurdles we're facing and it's st- is is that railroad still in use? It is still in yeah, use. Yeah, so it's not just like an abandoned. No, no, no. It's it's highly used. I think I, I think I counted it and timed it. Every thirty minutes, there's a there's a train full of coal coming. Okay. Headed south through that line. Yeah. So that that means you need engineers and all kinds of stuff yeah, involved. Yeah. You can't just get a, a a crew of volunteers to rebuild that thing. It's the story of my life. Nothing is ever easy. It's not a path I choose, but every path is seems to be somewhat difficult, but, you know, with all our supporters and BLM is, is certainly on board with this, uh, I, we're going to get it done. I think. Is there a hurdle in getting, I mean, we, we always think of the government as having just this big pot of money they can do whatever they want with. I mean, is, is that federal funding something that's difficult to get it being federal land? I think I could say, because this is public information, um, it's very limited funding. So the state of Texas, because there's such limited federal land, only gets $9 million for the whole state. Hmm. So when you think about how expensive a road costs or even putting in a trail or whatever development you're trying to improve or create on federal land, it's always super expensive, especially when we're talking post-COVID. Everything is inflated. Uh, Supplies are harder to come by. It's just super expensive. And it's isolated places too. I mean, it's it's not always easy to, to just get to those places. Right, right. And, you know, this year when we submitted or Potter County submitted the application for the for the grant, there were several other applicants. I think there were a total of 14 applicants for the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. So gives me and our, our, our stakeholders and our friends and the county tremendous pride in that we, knowing that we competed so well to receive this or to be shortlisted for this grant. 
So yeah, there's no, you know, people always think there's the government has abundant resources, especially for whatever, certainly not for recreation uh, or development of public land. It's, it's hard to come by. We, we all want to do it. I believe my personal opinion is that outdoor recreation is not a very political thing. It's very bipartisan. Yeah. It's everybody likes going outside and hiking or, or at least I would assume most people have uh, memories of doing it. And I think we could all agree that it's good for you, you know, to be physically active and, sure. and to get some sunlight. And it's good to, you know, show our kids what conservation is because ultimately they're going to be responsible for land stewardship moving forward. And uh, I think COVID really highlighted that. So people want it. We yeah, learned that. Yeah. It's, it, if there was any silver lining in COVID, it's that people want to connect to the outdoors. Yeah, again. they left it appreciating the outside a whole lot more, especially after the first few weeks. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you couldn't find – it's still kind of hard to find supplies like kayaks and bicycles oh, yeah. and couldn't find it. Yeah, people in neighborhoods discovered it was fun to go walk around your neighborhood. They, they may not have even right. done that before then. Yeah, neighbors were meeting neighbors they yeah. never met before. and. I don't know. I, you know, that was a silver lining for me for COVID. Well, let's talk about the recreation side uh, of what it could be. Let's let's jump forward however many months or years it might be and say we get that road in place. People can get there. Mm -hmm. What could it be? I mean, what, what do you imagine when you think of it, you know, in five or six years or, or whatever that timeline looks like? Yeah, whatever the timeline is, there's, there's a plan in place. Uh, you know, BLM, we did hire an engineering firm to to develop a master plan for the property. So far, we've got about 16 miles of trails constructed. Um, I'm planning for about 40 miles of trails total. Okay. Um, Chris Podzimny and his crew are, are behind a lot of that. Oh, yeah, working yeah. Working on the, the trails. Yeah, Chris and his crew are some of the uh, the pioneers of the effort. Um, you know, he's... He's spread pretty thin. He does yeah. a, a tremendous job all over. The Every week. trail in the panhandle is, yeah. is asking for him. So everyone knows Chris. He does a really good job, and he's got a tremendous following. So, yeah, I remember calling Chris up, and and we discussed it. He said, "Well, let's get to work." I said, "Well, it's not that easy. Yeah. I've got to do these assessments. Um, there's funding involved. There's processes involved. It's 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 a it's not as straightforward as we'd like it to be, but." You know, Lori Van Ogevel, her and her crew, they're they are mainly equestrians. Hmm. They are my main volunteers. I've got some amazing volunteers from the mountain biking community, from the equestrian community, from, you know, hikers. And I always forget to mention all the people that are volunteering in the background, like the Cashin Smiths, like Howard Smith, uh, Don Judd, all the folks that are not so inclined to do the physical labor on the property, but who do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, you know, the not so sexy stuff. Yeah. You, you know, you, you're getting meetings together, introducing people. Um, it's just a huge conglomerate of, of citizens and people who see the value in outdoor recreation for whatever reasons they see the value in. There's a lot of people that let's say will go to Paladura Canyon and they'll hike or they'll ride horses, they'll ride mountain bikes. And it's, uh, you go in Saturday morning, you spend a day there, you come back. Have, have you also thought about like camping and overnight stays and, and the kinds of maybe facilities that will make a, a longer term experience work? Yeah. So in that master plan, we, it, it was, it was always a goal to develop campsites, but to have the campsites isolated away from the main trail. So we're, 
we're pretty flat. If mm-hmm. you're on the uplands, we're pretty flat. There's, there's, I always joke with people. They, they ask where the mountains are. I'm like, well, we do have mountains. They're just still underground. They're they, inverted. We, they're inverted. And the ones that are underground, we haven't eroded enough to, uh, to see them. So we got to kind of hide the campsites. Personally, when I go out to any property, my family and I, we like to go see national parks on our vacations. And I want to go hiking where I'm not seeing tents and campers and all the other anthropogenic developments that are out there. I, I don't, I want that out of sight. I want to be in nature. Yeah. So yeah, we do have a plan to develop campsites. Uh, we'll have sites for equestrian use for, you know, there'll be primitive campsites. Hopefully we'll have improved, you know, RV sites. That's going to come in probably later. It's, it's a development phasing it process because everything's super expensive. Like I said earlier, everything requires environmental assessments. So yeah, we we have plans for all that. A lot of people want to see it happen now. Yeah, you know we just can't. But you got to get utilities out there. There's all kinds of steps. That yeah, happen yeah. First, there's all sorts of things that people may not think of that are required that just don't exist out there. So it's going to take time. But yeah, so we'll have. I think it's going to be an amazing area. It's going to be a great compliment to Polydoro Canyon. Hopefully, you know, I've had meetings with Texas Parks and Wildlife, and I'm hoping that we relieve some of the pressure off of Polydoro Canyon. Hmm. Um, Polydoro is such a special place. We're lucky to have it. It's a, it's a tremendous property with outstanding history and great experiences to be had out there. And one thing we want to make sure is we don't love Polydoro Canyon to death. Yeah. We definitely don't want to love the crossbar to death. I think I think it's going to be really good for people to experience a different type of landscape and different type of trail system. Yeah, people um people will hear you talk about the Canadian River running through there and you know the tributaries and stuff and they may think of okay, Canadian River, that's where I take my 4x4 and we go out mudding or we ride the the dirt bikes and right. and that kind of stuff. Is is that part of the plan for crossbar or is that happening somewhere else and, and you're looking for a little bit more of a quiet usage. That's the goal to uh, keep the off-road vehicles on the river, you know, doing what they do. You know, it's a fun experience out there. I've done it. It's great, but our soils just don't match well with that type of use. Hmm. If we were to allow for, you know, off-road vehicles, it would erode very quickly. And I hope people understand that it's not that uh, we don't, appreciate that type of use. It's just our land and what the public, the overwhelming majority of the public has has stated they want is to have a more family friendly, quiet environment to go experience the outdoors. So I, I know that people who listen to this podcast may have heard of Friends of Crossbar. They may have seen some of the billboards, you know, mm-hmm. the open crossbar billboards. What can you tell me about like what that group is doing. Um, I, I know it's all kind of volunteer driven. Like you're, you're probably not running the show cause you're, you're part of the, the government side of things, but right. what, what's their relationship to this process? So friends of crossbars new it's uh, the executive director is Lori Van Ogeville. Um She's been a volunteer of mine for years now. I think going on five years, she actually had to get used to volunteering in more of a office setting than just digging yeah. You know, trenches and cutting uh, trails. It's not all shovel work. It's not all shovel work. She's, you know, she's seeing the behind the scenes stuff that, that have to happen in order for us to do, to bring our vision to light. Uh, so it's fairly new. 
it's comprised of, of a lot of, you know, stakeholders who have an interest in it. You know, that's another thing that I need to mention is, is our philanthropy in Amarillo. We were friends of Crossbar wouldn't have been possible without the Gilliland foundation, mm -hmm. you know, Andrew Hall and, and those folks and other supporters, you know, there's, that's another thing that takes a lot of time and planning and resources to, you know, start advertising Friends of Crossbar or advertise a crossbar on behalf of the BLM. So with the BLM and Friends of Crossbar, we I'm happy to say that the BLM's first fundraising agreement with a private entity or a nonprofit was out of Amarillo. Really? And, and now we're starting to see that initiative spread like wildfire. Okay. Throughout the rest so of we're the kind BLM. of a test case then. Yeah, that that's my understanding. That's uh, in talking with headquarters and with our lawyers. Yeah, it's it's it was the first of its kind, and it's working out really great. Uh, Friends at Crossbar will continue to help develop the property by seeking grants and and other funding resources, and also, you know, hosting events like Trails Days mm -hmm. on the Crossbar. You know, right now. People always call me. I'm getting more and more calls as as people as more people move to Texas from Western states, especially. My phone is ringing off the hook, saying, "Hey, we did, we had no idea there was BLM land here. What do we do? How yeah. do we get there? How, How do we get there?" It? And I always got to tell them, "Well, you're in San Antonio or you're in Austin, so drive about eight hours mm -hmm. north to the Panhandle, and then you're gonna have to hike through the river. Then you're gonna have to hop the fence to get in." And they're always so surprised like yeah. this is not the way blm land is where i come from and so i have to explain over and over what our situation is here we're trying to create that access for you guys give us a little bit of time we'll get it done and give us some money maybe <laughs> yeah yeah that that always be or give it to friends across park yeah yeah i want to close this section just by asking you about this area since you know, you are from a different part of texas you spent most of your life in, in other parts of texas and have just been in amarillo the last 12 years or so, what have you learned about this area, especially given that your focus is so much on the land, it's on the landscape, the wildlife, like all those things. And we're just out here, this this island surrounded by land. Like, what have you learned about the people here and, and kind of the culture? Oh, man, it's some of the best people you could ever encounter. When, uh, you know, when we're having crossbar meetings or friends of crossbar meetings or whatever, we have people from all walks of life coming together and planning, you know, initiatives like Crossbar. And there's so much more volunteer work going on that most people don't know of. Those folks that come from, you know, all walks of life, all different experiences, then they meet together and they make things happen. There's a lot of pride in this community. Uh, you know, I think Cashin Smith says it, Panhandle residents have a very special kind of grit, but a very special type of hospitality as well. Hmm. It's somewhere along the lines, and it makes a lot of sense to me. It's we're serious people, but we're very hospitable, and we we're welcoming, and anything that would be good for our community, we want to we want to entertain. Yeah, that's what I've learned from the people and the culture here. This week's episode is supported by Wick Realty. I recorded this interview in my home studio. I record every interview in my home studio. And my family and I love our house, we love our neighborhood, and we're here because Wick Realty helped us sell our previous home and buy this one. Wick is invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. 
So if you're buying, if you're selling, if you're building, if you're looking for investment property, or if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Katie Wick or one of her outstanding agents. That's wickrealty.com, W-I-E-C-K. Okay, I'm back with Adrian Escobar. Adrian, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its collection includes the two-room log cabin headquarters of the historic T-Anchor Ranch, which was originally located north of Canyon and was moved piece by piece to the museum property. You can find it like right outside the museum in 1975, and that ranch dates back to 1877. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, I, I know you spend a lot of time thinking of the future because you're trying to figure out what crossbar is going to be in the future. But when you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? So I think uh, there's a lot of movement now. I think I think some progressive movement would be good for our community, you know, while maintaining our our values that people want to come see. The, the, you know, when I think when people think of Amarillo, they, they want to come experience the West. Mm-hmm. But I want to see some more development. I want to see, you know, all these cultures coming together. For specifically for Crossbar and and our residents, I I just envision, you know, people will come and stay in Amarillo longer. It's it's gonna be it could possibly become a destination. Now we have Paladero Canyon, which is world famous, Crossbar, and in the middle you got things like Hodgetown and the mm-hmm. city. So I want to see this movement, responsible development and you know, listening to our community on what they want and and how we could, you know, create new venues, new things like downtown development. It's we got some really great resources here that that we could exploit and and you know for everybody's benefit. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? I got to say there's too many rocks in the road, man. It's I can't keep a windshield. I I don't know if you've experienced this. I have experienced it. I probably am not driving uh, you know, 287 quite as often as yeah. you are. It it's terrible. I don't know what's going on, but I have rock chips in all my personal vehicles, my work vehicles, and as soon as I replace a windshield, I could expect a, a chip Within the month, it, I don't know what's going on, but there's just too many rocks in our roads. I understand that. I've I've let cracked windshields go for way too long, yeah. just because I don't want to replace it. Because I know as soon as I replace it, it's going to happen again. Oh so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Something's got to be done about that. I don't yeah. know how, but uh, it, it's just too many rocks in the road. Okay, yeah. I don't I don't have an answer to that or know how to fix it or anything. But yeah, it's real. What does this area not have enough of? I would like to see. More initiatives for water conservation. Hmm. My college professor, my rangeland and ecology professor, always labeled our area like um, it's not a grassland. It's more like a desert shrub grassland. We got a mixture. We're right on the edge of a desert. Uh, so I don't know. I'd like to see more more initiatives for water conservation. Uh, I don't think we we practice that enough. If we do, I'm not aware of it. But uh, I think there's more opportunity to be better at it. Yeah, I think I think that's a problem all over the West at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, it's it's one that's becoming increasingly clear in Amarillo and the Panhandle because of uh, because of the agriculture and and how much that uses and trying to figure out stuff. I know there's a lot of innovation happening and smart people are thinking about it. But just on a 
a residential level. Like it, it's not really on everybody's mind at this point. No, I've got a plan. My wife doesn't, she may not agree with me, but I've got a plan to zero scape it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe encourage some of my, my neighbors to follow suit. I just, or at least let's get to planting native grasses and yeah. not so much fescue that, you know, everybody has, and it's just a water thirsty plant. It's a lot easier if you're not the only house or yard on the block that's, right. that's gone dry like that. Yeah, exactly. When you talk to outsiders about Amarillo, what do you talk about? Just what we spoke of. Um, the people here are unique. They got grit. They got hospitality. Our philanthropists, our volunteers. It's it's amazing to me, the people that I meet that stick with it. They want their communities to be better. Um, you know, it's uh, it's just our, our people are tremendous. And as far as the landscape, you know, wind is our most popular thing. But uh, if I travel east to, you know, Nashville or Boston, I, I just want to get back because I yeah. want my open skies. Yeah. We got the most amazing sunsets and sunrises. If you want to experience a good sunrise and sunset, go to the Canadian River, get in one of those canyons and check it out because you're not going to find anything like it. Yeah. And that, it runs east to west. So you'll have a view absolutely. almost either direction. Absolutely. So, yeah, um, that's what I tell people. It's our people and our landscape is Top notch. Okay. Well, you spend a lot of time outside, but I want to ask you, what's your favorite building in Amarillo? Oh, yeah. I was thinking about this. I think the Potter County Courthouse. Okay. You know, I spend a lot of time in there. Uh, It's really old architecture. There's big, huge square columns everywhere you go, even where the commissioner's court meeting is. They got that one big column, but the restrooms are, you could, it's going to be hard to knock down that building ever because it was built really well. I... Like it's it's such a an old vintage looking building, and then you go inside and it looks exactly like you think it would look exactly, inside. And I'm yes. just always surprised that it's still being used yeah. as much as it's being used. Absolutely, yeah. the The doors are heavy. The walls are like concrete. Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me a lot of my parents' architect the the house architecture. It's, yeah, it's just Art Deco solid. style. Yes, and, yeah, yeah. Try to try to drive a screw through that wall. It's going to be hard. <laughs> okay. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? Oh, I'm a burger guy. And if you haven't had Burger Barn out on uh, the Dumas Highway mm-hmm. in Cherry, you got to try it out. It's close to the crossbar, so yeah. we I frequent that. And I I think they got the best burgers in town. I, I think, you know, Amarillo, when Amarillo people think about restaurants and stuff, they forget about... You know, the River Road area, yeah. St. Francis area, Cherry, yeah. like all the stuff up there. And there's some really good restaurants. Really and good. some of them have been there a long time. There's a new Mexican food restaurant, Jalisco's. They're yeah. off of uh, the Loop and, and the Dumas Highway. Really good stuff. Go up further north and check it out. Yeah. They're, but we have amazing restaurants all over the place. Okay. Yeah. What's your favorite local coffee shop? I don't drink coffee. I'm a Dr. Pepper guy, kind okay. of guy. Okay, say all that driving, all that uh, time in the truck. You're- yeah, I try to limit my Dr. Pepper, but I really like it. Um, I've tried coffee any which way you could have it, and I just can't. It smells really good, but it doesn't taste good to me. But I know uh, we have a lot of great coffee shops, Palace, Journey, uh, Roasters. Mm-hmm. I'm most familiar with Palace because uh, they really helped Amarillo Area Casa with yeah. an, an initiative years ago. But uh, I'm sure they're all great. I just don't drink coffee. Okay. Now, you've you've mentioned Paladero Canyon. When was the last time you visited the canyon? I go there pretty frequently. Um, not so much anymore to 
you know, on personal time, I, you know, I bring visitors and I show them the canyon. We go study their campgrounds. Yeah, it's work stuff then. It's work stuff. So I can't, it's been a couple months, but uh, I, I need to get back out there and start, you know, hiking it and enjoying it as my backyard playground and not yeah. so much as for business. Okay. I, I think a lot of people are probably just wishing they had a business excuse to go out to the canyon like you get to do. Like, that sounds nice to me. I tell everybody there's 10,000 employees that work for the BLM and I've got the best job out of all of them. Yeah. That concludes the eight straight questions. Adrian, I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? It's hard to narrow it down to one. There's so many good things. Obviously, Friends of Crossbar is something that people need to Click on and go learn it. I think we've discussed that enough. Uh, so go click on that. But I've really got a hoodoo mural. That mm. is a really cool initiative that's going on with downtown. Andrew Hall is doing a great job with it. I keep thinking that's going to be another tourism interest for people that are using Crossbar and Paul Duro and, and Hodgetown and at night. Or during the day, go take a tour of our murals. I, it's a really cool thing, and I hope people support it. You, you talk about the the progressive growth in Amarillo, and I, I think that's an important side of it. And people think of Amarillo, they think, well, it's all you know, cows and cowboys right. and ranches and Western stuff. And then you you see these really contemporary murals, and it's it's that modern progressive feeling that kind of stands. You know, maybe a, a little bit surprising to people who expect it to just be all like cattle trailers and, right. and that kind of thing. So I, I love that that's something that's happening and bringing people here because it's a different crowd. It's a different influence. We have opportunity to showcase it all. Yeah. You know, the progressive side, the conservative Western side, we're situated pretty well. I think Kevin Carter was on your show recently and I heard him say he tells people that Amarillo is in the middle of everywhere. Yeah. Um, which is true. We're, we're the hub. We've got a lot to offer. All right, Adrian Escobar, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I thanks for having me. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Adrian for the interview. Now, of course, Adrian is only involved on the federal side of things. But if you want to learn more about Crossbar, you can go to friendsofcrossbarsrma.org. Thanks also to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and to sponsors Wick Realty and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linker, Corey Burns, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 290. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>